Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. When I first began my career in Hollywood, the concept of life outside of work was completely foreign to me. I assumed that the only way to reach my goals was to sacrifice my health and my sanity for the sake of a great resume, only to discover that those early habits become lifelong habits if you're not careful. Once this mentality sets in and you set this expectation with others, it can be practically impossible to reverse. And that is why I am actively trying to change the conversation around our get-it-done-at-all-costs work culture so we can collaborate with employers and business owners who understand the importance of work-life balance. Early in my career, I was fortunate enough to experience a work culture where well-being was a priority at what was then a small fledgling trailer and marketing agency. Fast forward 15 years, and today, Mob Scene is one of the top movie marketing companies in the business, largely because of the culture that co-founder and CEO Tom Grain created from the very start. This innovative company has been an integral part of the marketing campaigns for projects like Avatar, Stranger Things, Fast 9, Wonder Woman, Joker, Knives Out, and The Trial of the Chicago 7, and that's just recently in like the last year. Historically, they have provided marketing and original content for more marketing campaigns than I can list if I literally had the entire episode to do so. Having a background as a studio executive for 20th Century Fox, our guest today, Tom, admits to having a strong work ethic, and he has spent his fair share of hours working super late and being away from his family. But his motivation when he founded Mob Scene was to create more flexibility with his time and be more available to his family, and he believed in fostering an environment that provides the same flexibility for his team. 
In our conversation today, we discuss a variety of topics that are going to help you as a creative better understand what it takes to get an opportunity if you're interested at working at a company like Mobscene. It's also going to help producers and business owners better understand the importance of fostering work-life balance with your teams. And this conversation can also help all of us better understand how we can navigate our constantly changing landscape of content, and that's whether or not we're working from home, we're at the office, or we're trying to adapt to a new hybrid work environment. Now, before diving right in, I'd first like to thank podcast insider Chris Colton for contributing questions to today's interview. All right, without further ado, my conversation with co-founder and CEO of Mobscene, Tom Grain. I'm here today with Tom Grain, who is the co-founder and CEO of Mobscene. And dare I say, even though it has been a little while, somebody that I consider a friend and a big part of the early portion of my journey to get where I am today. And I'm super, super excited to have you on the show and just pick your brain and learn all about how you do what you do in the, the business of, uh, of trailers. So I'm really excited to have you here. Well, it's it's great to be here, Zach, and it's even better to be talking to you because it has been a little while, unfortunately, that we haven't really connected. Well, the cool story about you and I, and I love to tell this story all the time when people ask me about the trailer industry, and you have no idea how often the name mob scene comes up now. It comes up all the time. It's crazy. And whenever somebody brings it up to me as if I'd never heard of the company, because if they do their research, they would never really know I was associated with him. Like, well, let me tell you a story about the old days, because I was literally there week one. You guys had cables all over the floor. You were still figuring out what furniture goes in what room. I think maybe a grand total, including me, of six employees, maybe eight. It was you. It was Christian. It was me, Brian, Jason, Craig. And I think that was it, but it was less than 10 people from what I remember. That was it. And then Phil came in. Yeah. Phil came in like, yeah, shortly after that. Like like a month. Yeah. But the the first few weeks, I I know for sure there were less than 10 of us. I don't know the exact. I think the day we opened up, there was six. Yeah. And, and the biggest client keeping the doors open was life after film school. That was the big behemoth at the time. Um, Because I remember getting assigned to to cut the pilot for that, which for me at the time was like, oh my God, something long form and scripted because that's what I wanted to do. Which by the way, if you remember, it was actually shot in my office, the very first pilot episode. I do remember that, yeah. Um, Well, anyway, we could reminisce forever and we might reminisce a little bit. Um, But the, the purpose of today's conversation is really twofold. The first of which is I get questions all the time where people want to understand what's the best fit for me? Do I want to go in the short form world? Do I want to go long form? What are the differences between them? And I talk a lot about the long form scripted narrative world because I've lived in that world for, I think, like 15 years now. Um, But I don't talk enough about the trailer and advertising side of the industry, even though though those were my roots. So I wanted to speak some about that. Um, But a lot of today's conversation is actually going to be off the beaten path a bit. And I want to better understand your mindset as the CEO, because what you have built, me having seen it from week one to what you become today is nothing short of astonishing in the landscape that we have in today's media with things that have changed so much. And it requires so much innovation and just rapid fire ways to kind of deal with what the industry is going through. And you guys, at least from what I can tell from the outside, I'm sure not without its challenges, but you guys have really weathered a lot, if not all of it. 
And the, the first one that I can think of just as a small example would be back when I was working for you fairly regularly uh, as a, a freelance editor, I was doing a lot of uh, DVD extra features. And for all the younger listeners, I'll put a Wikipedia link to what a DVD is. Um, but some could say, well, you stake your claim on DVD home entertainment that disappears. So I guess that's it. You guys just figured out over the years how to do so much innovation and change. And I've, I've been really impressed by that. And I want to better understand that and also what it takes to be able to work for a company like Mobscene. But where I want to start is the beginning, because you came from the creative world yourself before you decided to start a company. So can you give us just a little bit of background about the Tom, what he was doing when he decided, you know what, I think I want to start yet another marketing agency. Sure. Well, uh, let me give you a brief bit of background. I went to USC film school, had an internship my senior year at Columbia Pictures, working for the guy who was in charge of behind the scenes. That internship through relationships that I met there literally landed me my, my first three job, real paying jobs in the industry, where I worked at a small PR firm, and then a, uh, a small uh, production distribution company called Atlantic Releasing, which actually wasn't that small at the time in the in the mid to late 80s. They had done the original Teen Wolf. Uh, then I worked at United Artists for a brief stint before being at 20th Century Fox for 16 years. So at Fox, I was hired to run their uh, behind the scenes unit um, and also slash be a broadcast publicist, which meant that I was booking talent on Entertainment Tonight and Good Morning America for all their films, and also overseeing the EPKs, which were the behind the scenes. EPK stands for electronic press kit. So it was kind of like tape version, the video version of a regular press kit that you would send to press, but you would send this to the TV press. And it would include film clips from the movie, the trailer with split audio. Um, we'd do our own interviews with talent, and we would put sound bites and interview selects on there, and also B-roll, which is behind the scenes footage. So it would allow TV stations to create their own uh, stories um, and have supplemental materials to make them better. That quickly grew because Fox at that time, Murdoch's intention really was buying the studio, but to create a bigger media empire. And so he launched the Fox Network uh, about five years prior to me joining. He was at that time, as soon as I joined, was starting to put uh, build FX, FXM, Fox News, all, all these other stations that he was, was putting together, Fox Family at the time. And so suddenly, within a year by being there, we realized that we had this opportunity with all these networks that were being coming around the studio that we could create content, that they could promote our movies if we gave it, we found that if we created it and gave it to them, they, they were all so new, they would run it all the time. So they took away the publicist duties from me and I became the first full-time person in the business at a studio to just solely focus on what now is called creative content. But it's really running the behind the scenes unit and creating um, special pieces. When the biggest thing and my favorite thing to do when I was at Fox was doing HBO First Looks. It was my favorite thing to do. Um, you could do a half hour, 15 minute shows and they were long form essentially, but they were, they were docu you know, they were mini documentaries on the making of movies and they became often a lot less promotional and we tried to be, make them feel more documentary than to be a promotional film. And that, now that was always um, an interesting, creative challenge for me, for me, but that's, that's what essentially what it was. And then I spent 16 years at Fox and that last year, what, what ended up happening was 
It's actually the last two years. I was also, cause I was also doing trailers and TV spots the last five years I was there. And it just, 16 years was enough time. And it was time in my life where I had just had my kids. I had a, a two-year-old and a like six month old. And I was like, you know what? I'm not sure I'm going to do this in the studio anymore. I, I'm going to have to challenge myself and do something different. And I also, because of the kids being so little, I was literally working from 9 a.m. till 11. And I don't, I have an incredible work ethic that it wasn't about the hours, but I was, I was tired all the time, you know, and it was frustrating not to be able to see my kids. I wanted to take control of my life more so than I had working for someone else. So it was at that point, then the last year that I was there, that I started to, to venture out and see what else could I do. And I, I interviewed with a bunch of who are now my competitors about potentially joining them. Brian Daly, who was another advertising executive at Fox, approached me saying, hey, would you be, maybe be interested in forming a company? And I said, well, let's keep the talk going. But I've never done that before. I, I, I don't know if I've got that in me. I've got two young kids. I'm not sure I want to start working out of my garage at this point in my life. And then I kept interviewing at these other houses and people were throwing nice salaries at me and stuff like that, where it's like, okay, my life isn't going to change. I can still pay for my family. But it wasn't necessarily the dramatic enough switch that I was looking for in my life. So I kept talking with Brian and, you know, we decided in October of 2005 that we would make this jump because we got an, uh, an investor to come in for 20% of the company that would basically give us enough money that we could operate for six months. And the two of us could basically take salaries that were not quite what we were making at Fox, but it wasn't going to change our lifestyle. I could still send my kids to preschool. I can still, you know, afford groceries and whatnot. And um, so we took that leap. So you decided that I've got a two-year-old and a six-month-old and the best thing I can do to have more time with them is I'm going to start a company from scratch. Well, you know what it was? It was more about design, thinking about into the future that if we were successful, I would be have much more control of my own time schedule at that point in time. So I was like, okay, let's, you know, obviously that first year you were around it a lot. I was there a ton. It may have been kind of foolish of me to think this because I'm still around there a ton and it has been that way for 15 years. But listen, if I, if my kids have something that's very important, a dance show or something like this, I can take the time off and go without asking anyone. So that's what was really, in a weird way, what motivated me to do it on our own was to actually have the ability to spend more time with my kids. Yeah, I can completely relate to all that because one of the things that I talk about on the show and that I talk about with the students that I have in my mentorship program is that you have to think about playing a game of chess. And to look at that decision at the time, it's like, well, if your needs are you want more time with your kids, why wouldn't you just take a, a regular lateral move salary job at one of the, the competitors that you have now, just being an executive? executive, but you are really thinking multiple moves ahead. And for you, it's all about control of my time, which you and I are wired exactly the same way. I can work 80 hours a week if I'm my own boss working me 80 hours a week, but 40 hours a week that goes against the grain of my needs and my schedule just creates all kinds of stress and anxiety for me. Absolutely. Um, and that was that's one of the reasons that I think you and I hit it off so well so early that I still appreciate to this day is that 
you understood that ultimately big picture, I probably wasn't the right fit for mob scene because I really wanted to do long form features. That's I wouldn't shut up about it. I was always telling you and Brian, like, I want to go work on this feature. Do you have anything long form? Um, I remember way back in the day, you might not even remember, but I got to work with Michael Patrick Kelly on a couple of uh, DVD episodes of The Comeback. Which to you guys, I was like, oh, we'll just throw it to Zach as he keeps talking about doing long form. But that got me meetings. That got me into rooms where people took me seriously. But at the same time, you knew that big picture, I probably wasn't going to go into the, the behind the scenes feature content or be a, a staff guy. But you recognized what really was the best fit for me. But at the same time, you were willing and open for me to be a part of your team and a part of your culture as you were building it as it was the right fit for me and the right fit for you. You might not realize it, but that period of time where I was kind of going in and out the door and doing this HBO first look or this feature ad or kind of helping out on a DVD thing, that made the difference between me being able to transition into doing features in TV and not doing it because that's how I was able to make a living. I was taking features for no money. I had one feature that I did for eight months for $0 and mob scene and the work that you provided me paid all of my bills. So you had a huge, huge part in me being able to make that transition. But frankly, you also could have been a dick and you could have just said, you know what? Listen, if you're not going to be here and you're not all in and you can't do all the trailer stuff, we don't need you. But you weren't. And I, I do have to just say on a personal level how much I appreciate the fact that you were willing to do that way back in the day. Well, you know, what? You're, you're one of the first ones. I've always felt that way where it's like there's no there's no point in me standing in between someone, an employee's career. You know, if they if they really want to do something else it, and it's like and I've had a lot of people after you that have wanted to do other things and I'm like you know, absolutely. If this is what you want to do, I'll let you out of a contract. You know, um, you know, it's the only difference would be is if someone wanted to just go to a competitor and do the same thing, that's a different story. But if someone wanted to make a huge change in their life, like let's take Jason Groff, who was one of the first employees who we, we worked with. Jason worked for me for, I want to say, I want to say about 18 years. He started on my desk as an assistant at Fox and came over with when we started mob scene and recently was given an opportunity to go over and, and, and do basically my old Fox job at Sony. And I'm like, you know, I hated seeing him go, but I'm like, if this is really what you want out of your life and this is what you want to do, um, you've got my blessings and I'll let you out of your contract. You know, it's, I, I, I don't think it behooves anyone to hold someone back if they're not going to be happy doing what they're doing, you know, and you were happy doing what you're doing at that time. But you always had a better, a, a different ambition. And once that started to, to, you know, flourish for you, it was like, you know, God bless you. Good luck. You know, and I look forward to seeing your name in the credits. Mm -hmm. And what, one of the conversations I remember having probably more than once, as I had said to you, if Mob Scene was in the business of doing long form scripted shows, I'll work for you for the rest of my life. Because it was the culture I wanted to be a part of. I love the people, but you and I both knew that it wasn't creatively the work that I was really shooting for big picture. And it's it's a multi-year game, as I've learned, to go from the trailer and advertising world into the long form world, which is one of the biggest questions that people ask me. How do you make a transition from one area of the industry to another? Because a lot of times the assumption is, well, you're a trailer editor, you're a comedy editor, and you couldn't possibly broaden your perspective and just be able to cut story. You can only 
pigeonhole yourself as one thing. And I was always terrified of getting pigeonholed doing the wrong thing, which is why I ended up being so selective. And um, you were, you were open-minded enough to see that uh, that made uh, made sense for both of us at the time. But you also have that one care. It's fun, ironic because yesterday I, I, I guess speak a couple of times at various film schools and whatnot. And yesterday afternoon I did one for Loyola Marymount. And it, the, what a bit of advice I always give young kids coming into the business is, you know, the number one attribute you got to have is persistence and a love and desire for what it is that you want to do. Because, you know what, maybe it'll take two or three years to get that ball rolling. But if you're persistent, it will get rolling. You know, it's those who are sitting there thinking that, oh, well, I've just graduated from school. I'm owed this or don't quite haven't found their passion or their passion is kind of not it's off to the side. But if you're persistent, you're going to succeed and you're going to succeed at what you want to do and get out of your career. Yeah, I, I uh, clearly I echo that sentiment because uh, uh, if there were ever a word, if I were forced to tattoo it on my forehead, it would probably be persistence. <laughs> uh, so there's no question about that. Um, what I'm curious about now is how you created the culture that you did at Mob Scene because you see the word family on the website a lot. And I feel like you were very specific in the early days about the kinds of people that came into the company. Because at first there were there were some people that kind of came and went and this person, they're not really a good fit. And you, there, there was a period of time where I think you were figuring out what is mob scene? Who are we and what do we do? And I even remember very, very early in the day where it was called mob scene creative and productions. And it's like, but wait, what, what is Mob Scene exactly? Is it a trailer house? Is it a DVD content company? And I think one of the things that's made you successful is there is no clear answer to that. But talk to me about how you've kind of formed who you are and what your company culture is. It's actually kind of ironic. When, when Brian and I were kicking around names for the company, when we were putting everything together, we really couldn't settle on anything. I'm a, I'm a huge Springsteen fan, and I kept trying to put Springsteen songs as the title of our company, you know, the name of our company. I think Brian came up with the, the, the name Mob Scene, which didn't really stick out to me, but it, the idea was to draw people to an entertainment property. We were creating a mob scene around what, we're, what products we were, you know, films and properties we were working on. But it didn't really stick it was until we hired a, um, a designer to come up with logos. The first time I saw our logo, which if for those of you who you can't see it because we're on a podcast, but for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a fish wrapped in newspaper, you know, of, of not so subtle tip of the hand to the Godfather and, and to the mafia. And I saw that and I was like, we can't go with that. That's ridiculous. But it made me laugh. It, it gave me a chuckle. I kept going back to that and we were kind of like winking to ourselves. But what was what we didn't realize at the time was we've kind of embraced the whole idea of the mafia behind the culture of the company. Um, obviously not the crime aspect of it. I would hope not. Aspect, and if so we'll cut all those parts out for legal reasons. Yes. But the part about family and how family is the most important thing in, in that unit and how that, you know, you would put family first. We call ourselves mobsters. We, we have since the very, I don't know if we were, that was there when you, when you were there, but it's been a long time that we've been referring to each other as mobsters. And the culture is literally about, family and creating family and having each other's back. That was important to me because I saw those last few years at Fox, I had been at Fox where the culture literally was a family culture. When we had people like Tom Sherrick and Joe Roth and Bill Mechanic running the, the studio, 
they were very much about family and very, very loyal to the employees and, you know, wanted us to be happy. The longer I was there, the more and more News Corp got put into the culture and the less family aspect that Fox was. And it was something that I really, really missed those last few years at Fox. And probably one of the reasons that also partially drove me away to try and look and find a different, change my career at that point in time. But that's where we came up with the the culture because it was something that I I had experienced early on at Fox. I I had missed, I had seen how successful it was. And we retained, I mean, that, that early period of Fox, no one left. Those last five, six years I was at Fox, the turnover was constant. And that was because the culture had changed so much. One of the things that's really difficult for me to understand, and I'm hoping you can help me break this down, is that you have this company, starts out fairly small, has now exploded to what it is, and it's all about family. But one of the most difficult things for people to figure out, which is essentially what I built my entire business model on, is how do I survive the insanity of working in this industry? How do I survive the brutally long hours and the 24-7 notes and requirements? And if you're going to stay a client of mine, you need to be available at 11 p.m. on a Saturday to do round 37 of these notes on this trailer, that featurette. I mean, you, you know this world and you've lived and breathed it for decades. So how do you balance being a family and looking over everybody's ultimate needs and being able to, to survive and thrive with, the, the, frankly, the insanity and the, the requirements of being successful in Hollywood? Well, see, I think that's exactly why. I don't think if, if we had a different culture, it, it'd be, it would be a completely different situation. I, and, and surviving it would not be fun. It's like going back again toward my last few years at Fox, it wasn't fun anymore. The culture was no longer a family-like culture. It's amazing how the way I describe our, our culture at Mob Scene is two words, family and teamwork. And if you know, we have to have each other's back and we have to like working with each other. A, a few years ago, um, if you talk to some of the other employees, I, 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 of course, I was drinking a little bit. It was at the Christmas party and I always give a little toast and speech. And um, somehow I went off on this thing where I, I, I was like, we have a no dicks allowed rule at mob scene where it's like, you know what? I don't care if people are, you know, super talented, um, could bring in a, a, just a ton of work if they're jerks. I don't want them in there because they're going to ruin the culture. So if it's just not worth it to me to have the whole Apple cart upset, to put more money in the coffers of the company and put up with someone who's just a complete a-hole. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that I gravitated to you guys. And uh, to this day, it's something that I always think about and a a maxim that I have in my mind. It's even uh, one of the things that I said outright when I interviewed for Cobra Kai is I said that I want to work for a team of people where the best idea wins. You and I can get into a a, a very heated debate about it should be this color or that color. The copy should be this or that or whatever it is. That's all part of the creative process as long as it's respectful. And at the end of the day, I know that it's not about, well, you're the CEO and it doesn't matter how stupid your idea is. You're going to tell me to do it. It's whose idea wins. That to me is what creates the the feeling of safety where you can share ideas even if they're stupid ones because you know you're not going to get fired or looked down upon. Sometimes you're going to be right. You'll be wrong sometimes too. But that to me is such an important part of a creative culture is just this openness to to fight for the best idea, but everybody respects each other because it's not that way everywhere. No, but it's also there's there's a big difference between – the the long form world of, that you are now in versus the short form world that you know we still are mostly in because ultimately it's our clients who have the final say on, on decisions so my encouragement to editors and, and writers and producers is put everything you've got into that first cut 
because once it gets off to the client, you, you have no real control over what's going to come back. And, and look, we're very fortunate. Most of our clients are very, very smart, very creative people. And the notes that we get back are generally improve the piece a, a, a lot. Um, but occasionally they'll have a boss's boss who will want to step in on something like this and just to put their stamp on a piece. And, you know, and you, and you, you hear it in the voice of, of the client where it's like, you know, you can tell they're not necessarily as thrilled about it, but then you try and make it out. And sometimes you can actually make it, make a, a not so great idea actually and do a really good thing, it, you know, a bad note into a good note. Yeah, and the funny thing is in the long form scripted world, it's really not that different because as an editor, I get to put forth what I think is the best version of the editor's cut. Then you have an outside director that comes in. They put their shape on it. Then you have the showrunners and the producers. Then it goes to the studio. Then it goes to the network and you always get those notes. I call them thumbprint notes. I got to get my thumbprint on this. So I need to ask for this one thing so I can nudge, nudge my wife and say, see that? That was me. Right. But at the, at the end of the day, it's it's very, very similar. But I one of the, the things that I said about the short form world, when people would ask me, why don't I want to stay in the short form world and why would I want to go to long form? And to this day, I think my favorite thing on the planet as an editor is to cut version one of a trailer. Versions two through 59, those are kind of painful. And those were the ones that ended up making me realize I'm more interested in the long form storytelling world. But version one of a trailer is just like this open buffet to just make whatever you want. But I think one of the traps that uh, creatives and especially editors fall into, and you can speak to this more, is becoming too married to their early ideas and getting the sense of ownership and feeling disgruntled and, oh, we can't do that. That's a dumb note or whatever. And I think that's, to me, being able to manage that properly and manage it politically is a big part of being successful specifically in your world. Absolutely. And I, and I find that more with younger people who are just coming in or people who are just getting into the business where the, they're, they're just not used to that. And it and it's they're they're not used to getting the critic. It's it's not any different than being an actor and being critic. You know, having your 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 trailer criticized, or you're having your edit criticized, or your 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 featurette criticized. Um, you have to develop tough skin because and, and just remember that you, what you've done is you've put the, your best foot forward in the beginning, and now you have to continue to put your best foot forward to keep it good. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, 
it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. The next thing I want to understand about how you've built Mob Scene to what it is today, and uh, you can, I've been telling people, and I could be wrong about this, but from what I can tell, you guys are essentially on what would be considered the top tier of marketing or trailer agencies. Like, I don't need, the companies change so much, but I mean, it, would it be incorrect to say that whatever the the top tier, maybe the top five companies, you guys are in that group now, correct? I, You know what, I, I would say so. I don't really look at it that way. You know, I'm like, uh, as I as I tell our employees, I go, listen, there's there's too much competition out there in in technology. Just to, you know, just prior to the time when we started Mob Scene, there weren't a lot of trailer houses and there weren't a lot of behind the scenes houses because the technology was. It, I mean, that was a point in time where it would cost three hundred thousand dollars to build a bay, you know, and then suddenly that cost went down and cut cut in half which made it more affordable and a few more houses popped up. And then suddenly with, you know, when final cut came up, came along, suddenly you could, buy, you could build a bay for 20 grand or under and boom, off to the races. And suddenly there was, there was, you know, we went from four or five big trailer houses to suddenly a plethora of over 50 companies, um, seemingly almost overnight. I'm glad that you said that because that brings me back to my point of around the time you and Brian decided we're going to make mob scene. Everybody else had the same idea. I can get 10 final cut bays for 20 grand a piece and we can do marketing and advertising, but you guys stuck it out and you've been around for two decades and you're still at the top. And when I go to your website and I go under the, the section that talks about what you do, Mob Scene isn't a trailer house. You do creative advertising, you do content, you do broadcast and streaming, you do original productions, you do social and digital, you do brand, you do motion graphics. You guys didn't say, we're the EPK guys or were the network TV spot guys. So what I'm curious about, it might be conscious and it might not be, but what is kind of the core underlying question or thought process that you have about the company you built that's allowed you to innovate so much with all the technology changes and the content changes? Like you've watched the world completely transform with how it consumes content from the time you open until now, more than in any 20 year span in history. Well, yeah. When we first started, Brian and my original idea with the company was we called it a divisionless company. We didn't want to be known as a trailer shop. We didn't want to be known as an EPK shop. We wanted to be known as Mob Scene and what Mob Scene brought. And so, you know, that's where it's like when you were there, you would be, you could cut a trailer one week and then the following week you could spend three weeks cutting an, an HBO first look. We, you know, we didn't want ourselves to be pigeonholed. We didn't want our talent to get bored. You know, it's like if you're cutting the same thing over and over and over again, I mean, I, I see it a lot in creative advertising where those who are just cutting 30 second TV spots over and over and over again, and they're on fibers with the, with the clients. Lot. Some of those editors are, you know, are, um, absolutely stunningly amazing, but I've seen a lot of those people burn out too, because of that 
routine. And that, and that goes to the, where you can be on a fiber with certain clients until not <coughs> consistently nine, 10 o'clock at night. And it's, it's really frustrating that way. So what the, the funny thing is, is, okay, so we, we opened the doors in January of 2006. Um, within that first year of being in business, it's an interesting thing kind of took foothold in the world. Um, YouTube, which was, you know, the ability to actually stream video over the internet for the first time. And suddenly what that did for us was it made that whole, that's where the word creative content kind of came. That's where it switched from being known as EPK behind the scenes to creative content, because suddenly you know, we weren't just limited to creating pieces that would be given to an FX or an HBO first look. Suddenly you can create pieces that were genre pieces that could go on genre websites specifically and and not unlike how you cut tv spots for different demographic shows you know commercials that you know you you can see a an ad for the same movie look completely different if you were watching a female show or you, a young male show or something like this and the spots would look completely different that's when suddenly creative content suddenly we were going instead of making a featurette for the epk and maybe an hbo first look special suddenly we started creating a lot of pieces of content for movies because of what the internet provided. So that's kind of where the company, it was an interesting, I guess, so to speak, lucky timing that we started the company right before YouTube really took, took hold. And it just kept going with that, you know, and you were earlier asking me about um, DVD. We did, you know, in, in the beginning, we were doing a lot of DVD extras, which then became Blu-ray extras. And, you know, it's ironic, but that business hasn't gone away that we still do a lot of um, DVD extras, but we also do a lot of extras that now appear on for streaming. So if you go on to Apple TV uh, and, and go into the, the VOD for movies, you can go to Avatar and a lot of our Avatar features are, are there attached to the movie if you buy the movie. Um, and Warner Brothers does the same thing for a lot of their stuff as well. So we're still creating extras. It's just the platform in which they're, they're, you're, you're, you see them is than it was off of necessarily a lot of discs. Now, there still are a lot of people buying discs. Um, there's, you know, Walmart still sells an awful lot of Blu-rays every year. Which shocks me because I, I, I don't think I bought physical media for – I don't even remember the last time I bought anything physical. Um, but I do know that they're still out there. Um, but I think the the key here that I see, the first of which is very early on deciding this is a divisionless company, which to me is that that's pretty smart because that explains a lot that if that's a core foundation of who we are as our identity, now it makes sense. Now I can see how you do so many different things because you didn't decide, you know what, we were going to be an EPK company, but crap. Now we got to change gears if we're going to survive. You decided before day one, we are divisionless, but most importantly, we tell stories and we create the content as opposed to somebody has the content and we're the guys that master the Blu-ray or master the DVD or whatever it is. No matter how content changes going forwards, as long as you're the guys telling the stories, we as an audience and just we as human beings crave stories. We always will. You just find different mediums and you adapt to the technology. Yeah. Well, it's funny because if you look at, um, you know, as I was talking about the time when we were starting the company that there suddenly was this, this it wasn't just us building these new companies because the technology got so so cheap. There was a lot of others. But if you look at the old legacy trailer houses, 
they were having trouble adapting because it had been business as usual for like 30 years prior to that. And not much had really changed. You know, the, the form of the trailer changed somewhat with J Jeffrey Katzenberg, where if you look at trailers from the 70s and 60s, they were more visceral experiences to give you a taste of who was in it, what the story, you know, which genre it was in. But with, with Katzenberg, he, you know, in the, in the 80s, he changed it into a three-act, that trailers should be in three acts, kind of mimicking the, the movie. But for those old, leg those old legacy um, trailer houses, they had a tough time adapting. And that's why a company like Mob Scene was very, you know, we saw that look, look, this industry is changing very rapidly and it's only going to continue to change because of technology. So we're going to have to be adaptable. And that goes to the divisionless thing where it's like, again, we didn't want to get ourselves pigeonholed because that could have made us stuck like a Cimarron, which really was known as an, an old trailer house. And he, and, you know, bless them for, they tried and tried, but never could figure out another identity and could never move away from that. Yeah. And multiple uh, of those legacy trailer houses are now just gone from what I understand. They're just, they just disappear. Like the big giant beh behemoths with whole buildings of hundreds of people just poof, completely disappeared. Completely gone. The ant farm and Cimarron yeah, there's, yeah, a lot of them have all, Seiniger, a lot of them all have gone. And speaking of innovation and having to deal with challenges, the very first message you see on your website is about how you're innovating because of the last year. So I'm curious, again, because of all of the, the shifting or downsizing or lack of work or everything else, what are some of the things you've done to innovate to survive the last 12 months? Um, I'm actually going to back that up a little bit further because I think that what, what's affected us the last 12 months really kind of started back in 2017-ish. Um, um, that was a point in time where I think that it, the industry really, you know, that's when Netflix had had a few years of growth. They had started to reach this point where they were becoming massive in terms of the amount of content that they were producing and putting on their platform. And we were fully doing a, 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 a fair amount of work with them from the get-go. But what we noticed was, for working for Netflix, you, you've made a joke a couple times about trailer going to version 39. They had so much content, they couldn't afford to go to version 39. They had to get, they had to make things faster and quicker and which meant that actually to be cheaper. Um, and so in, back in 2017, we saw that it's like, great, we got all of this work with streamers, but the margins aren't the same as working for a big studio. So we have to make adjustments and it took us about 18 months and we kind of made adjustments in terms of, you know, um, you needed editors that were younger, newer, fresher at a different pay level. And then you still needed guys that were more expensive that were, had, a, a, you know, years and years of experience and talent behind them. So we had to readjust the face of the company, knowing full well that this change was happening. Now, what the past year has done is, whereas we thought that there was probably another five years of transition before the world was going to go from, you know, like in the 80s, it went from the U.S. domestic box office being king of all in the 90s, suddenly the global, you know, the international box office became king. And they were actually, and then, you know, the Blu-rays and DVDs. The same thing, you know, we saw was starting to transition from theatrical to streaming. What we didn't anticipate with the COVID pandemic was they basically took a five-year change and put it together overnight. 
You know, it literally happened overnight rather than over five years. So I think that what, that what for us, what was, was, was great was that we recognized this back in 2017. So we were prepared for the switch which um, uh, allowed us to kind of enter into this thing um, and do really well. Now, that be said, we all we all had a rough year. When we were shut down, we all thought, okay, this will be 30, maybe 45 days. We'll be back in the office before Memorial Day. And then it kept going and it kept going. And, and initially clients were like, okay, we're, we still need, you know, we're still anticipating releasing Wonder Woman in the summer or just, you know, a suicide squad or something. So initially work continued. And then suddenly it was like, is it, is it, we got this to this period in the summer where it's like, I, we don't know when it's going to end. No one knew when it was going to end. So the work kind of stopped for a bit, you know, thankfully production started up again in the summer, Netflix and the other streamers all had, you know, a year's worth of content to still be launching that they had in there, you know, maybe still wasn't through post all the way, but they still had a a lot of things to promote. Decisions were made like what Warner Brothers did, which was they decided to, you know, take their entire theatrical slate for 2021 and simultaneously release it on HBO Max and in the theaters. As a film lover, my initial reaction to that was like, oh, ow. You know, I don't want the theatrical business to go away. Um, you know, and the same thing with Disney putting Mulan on, you know, uh, in, in theaters, but mostly, you know, for a premium price on Disney Plus. It, it's kind of like, gosh, I really don't want the theatrical. This is why I came out here. It was, you know, as a child going into that movie theater when the lights go down and thing of popcorn in there and take you away to a different world or, um, was was what, what attracted me here. Um, but I think what it was was that you know when 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 Disney did that and Warner Brothers made the, those two moves, it signaled exactly what I was pointing out, where this was going to happen. The window was going to collapse between theatrical and available in the home. It, it, this this old thing of three months was always going to shrink. You know, again, we thought it would maybe take place over the next five years. Instead, it happened overnight. But it's not a bad thing because what's happening is is the movie theaters are opening again this week, you know, here in Los Angeles, finally, after a year. And I think people are itching to get back to the movie. So I think what we're going to get is a lot of, you know, options as consumers to sit there and go, how do I want to view a thing? And maybe I wouldn't go and see um, a no, maybe someone wouldn't go and see a no man land in the theater, but they would watch it at home. But then again, when the Avatar sequels come out, I would I would venture to guess if it's available in both platforms, most people will elect to go see a movie like that in the theater, as is they will when Black Widow comes out and and, and movies like that. So um, I think it's I think it's going to be an exciting period when we come out of this thing. And you know, I think that people are really jazzed to get out of their homes. I think we've consumed a lot in our homes. That's not going to go away, but I think we're going to want some different options to get out there, stretch our legs. And you know, I know I can't make as good a popcorn at home as you can get from <laughs> a movie theater. It's probably healthier though. Um, you're probably not putting four and a half cups of salt and butter on it, but uh, yes, I, I definitely know what you're saying. So one of the things that I'm curious about, um, talking about innovations changing overnight and being forced to, uh, a question that I get all the time that I've talked about, maybe not uh, as an informed expert, but as a, a curious onlooker that dabbles in tests, is this idea of remote work. 
I'm guessing that over the last year, you've had to transition to a completely remote workforce, yes? Um, absolutely, with, with one exception, our finishing department. The, the, the group that does the final color, the mixes, that equipment is just simply too expensive still to be operated on at home. And also they're dealing with the raw files, which makes it next to impossible to work remotely uh, on. So, um, you know, we, we very safe with protocols because we, you know, our, our office footprint is about a little under 40,000 square feet. So if you had only eight people going in there, all of which have their own separate rooms or bays, um, we were able to operate completely safely through the pandemic for our finishing group. Everyone else in the company, though, was work remotely. So it's, 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 a, it's been a really great experience, um, but I think that there's two things that are missing. Number one, you can only have so much on Zoom. You know, something our editors are telling us all the time that they miss the thing that if they're cutting something, they can walk out of their bay, walk into another bay with another editor and sit there and say, hey, can you come over here and take a look at this cut? I'm, I'm a little stuck here. Um, do you got any ideas? You can't do that over Zoom. You know, um, it's kind of like, and then I, and then there's something also about brainstorming that, you know, you do it on zoom again, that there's, that there's, there's a different energy when you're in person and you're throwing about ideas like that. You know, people are talking about virtual writers rooms and I'm like, I'm sure that's great to get us through this thing, but I'm sure they would, they would be much more productive, um, and probably more creative if they were in a room together again. So I think that that the creative process is actually suffering somewhat because of this, because of the the the, the remote work working, and that's where I'm really hoping that we come back. The other aspect of it is too is I don't know whether we'll be allowed to continue remote work. I think that it was allowed during this period because it was a, a, a worldwide crisis and an emergency that no one you know we've had very little time to prepare for. But I can't imagine studios allowing our editors to be working on Avatar 2 and 3 from their home, um, the next Jurassic World movie from their home. There's, there's different levels of security. As you, you know, our building is so secure and we are constantly going through and dealing with the studio's um, security agents um, to ensure that we are just, at, you know, as locked down as we possibly can be. Um, that's impossible to do it. That's, that's possible to do it in, in you know, like 35 square feet of, 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 of footage, of square footage in, in an office space. But how do you do that at 80 different locations around Los Angeles uh, or apartments or homes? That's next to impossible. And it, and it, it would also be cost prohibitive, I would imagine, to, to put all those security things uh, in someone's home like that. Which I think probably answers my next question that I know a lot of other editors and creatives that would be looking to work for a company like Mobscene either now or in the future. I personally believe that the most conducive to both the creative process, but also to some semblance of work-life balance is the hybrid model. And as you know, you and I were experimenting with that back in 2006 because that was basically one of my stipulations is that I really want to help you guys with whatever the next feature ad is. But I was also dealing with other projects and clients. And I said, do you mind if I just, you know, take a drive and work from home? And back then the, the security stakes were much lower and they were smaller projects. Um, but we were kind of experimenting with that. And I've always believed that I don't think that just remote works. Even for me, you, you don't get any more introverted than me. 
when the pandemic hit and everybody started saying quarantine, I'm like, I call it Monday. Like this is what every day is like for me. I'm always working from home, doing my own thing, but I know that it's best for the creative process to be in the room with people and bounce back and forth ideas. But I also think this antiquated idea of you must be in the office from 9 a.m. until 7 p.m., no matter if you have work to do or not, that just burns people out. So I've always thought the hybrid model is probably the best one to go back to. But from your perspective, as somebody dealing with the biggest movies on the planet, security is a concern. But let's assume for a moment that security wasn't as much of a concern. What do you think is really the best model, both for creative process, but also just for health, well-being and sanity to make sure you're not burning your talent out? Well, I agree with you. In a perfect world coming out of this pandemic, I would love to see a hybrid model be able to be instituted. Um, you know, there are different levels of project security. Um, you know, everything, everything that comes into the company, we're very, very incredibly careful with. But there are some things that can be done um, under less, um, you know, protection. Um, and, and I'm not necessarily talking about like a t- television show or a, a feature film. We also do a lot of other different types of projects um, that are not under as, nearly as much uh, security. Um, those could be still be done at home. And I think that if we, you know, and if in pending the client's um, restrictions or want a level of security that they want, um, you know, we might be able to work on some things remotely. And I think that it would be very healthy for everyone if they were able to do to do both. Not unlike the initial idea with mom scene was one week you could be cutting a trailer and the following three weeks you could be cutting an HBO first look to just change things up and keep you fresh and keep you on, you know, engaged. Um, but I think that, you know, being able to offer that would be really nice. I just don't know whether it's going to be our call. I think we're going to have to see what the clients are going to want. And we're going to obviously adhere to what the clients ask for. Um, if, if some remote working is allowed, we will definitely allow that as an option for people. And if it's not, then we're all going back there. But I also think that it's important that those people who do choose to do some of their work at home, that they do come back into the office and spend some time in there. Because like I said, it's like, you know, you learn things from other people. I mean, you've been around other editors. You've, you you know, as, as good as you are, there's still things to learn. You know, as as I feel that way too, as as, as just a leader of this company, and even even in my creative, when I'm when I'm still running projects, it's like. Um, and I need, sometimes I need some inspiration and I get that from other people. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. And it's one of the, one of the core foundations of anything that I choose to tackle next. Cause as you know, I'm no stranger to pursuing a challenge and, um, you know, going after things that some might say could be crazy stupid. But one of the things that I do is I surround myself with people that are way better at that thing than I am. And that was one of the cool things about mob scene is that I come in surrounded by all this new talent, learning all these new things. Same thing happened when I moved to scripted, I worked on burn notice and I was a kid amongst these people that have been doing this for decades and were amazing at it. It's like, Oh my God, I thought I was pretty good at this. And I look at what they're doing. Like I have so much to learn. I love that. But for some people that's intimidating. They just kind of want to live in their own bubble and do their own thing. Um, but at the end of the day, like we're, we're talking about being in the room, being with the group, with the, the coworkers down the hall, 
I really do think that that's the best way to do the creative work. But given how difficult it can be to, to drive to the middle of Beverly Hills on a, you know, Monday morning or whenever, I mean, if, if you guys had, uh, had set up shopping in Sino, I might still work for you. Um, but the, the drive to Beverly Hills from uh, the Valley almost killed me every single day. But anyway, the, my point is that there are a lot of people, and I'm sure you're seeing this, maybe some as well, but I know a lot of friends, colleagues, and people I'm seeing online, they're starting to move away thinking, we all get to work from home now. I'm like, "Eh, not so fast, guys. I don't think it's going to work this way forever. And you're still going to need to drive into an office and be part of a team. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and look, you know, my wife and I are talking about too. It's like, we always thought that we would retire in California. and, And like many people here over the past year, it's like, we're kind of more open to maybe looking in other places, you know, and, uh, and if, and if I start to step back from this job in eight, nine, 10 years or whatever, and I just still want to keep my foot in the pool, I could do that from, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. I could go back to Atlanta. You know, I have a daughter at the university of Miami. Now we could go to Florida. We could, you know, we, we don't necessarily have to be here because we've proven how you can, you know, successfully work remotely, but that's what it's different as a leader. And, but, you know, and I I think that I would still have to come back and forth to Los Angeles because you want to, you want, again, it's so important to be there. Um, That's the, that's the thing that's, you know, I I miss the most of, of mob scene is the fact that there's so many people I have not seen in person for a year. It doesn't matter that we've spent time on Zooms like this. It's just, they're, they're family. Yeah, and I, I can relate to, relate to all of that. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Um, what I want to transition to next for a little bit, because I know that my audience will just absolutely destroy me if I don't ask these questions, because it's not every day you get the CEO of Mob Scene onto a podcast interview. But if I am one of those creative professionals, whether I'm entry level, assistant editor, editor, story producer, whatever it might be, what's the difference between the people that you say, you know what? We want to meet with them, and I think they can be a part of the team versus, 
no, I don't think they're a good fit because you must get thousands and thousands of people when you open up job postings, whether it's on LinkedIn or whatever site. And there's always criteria that takes people from the no pile to the maybe pile to the let's interview them because I think they could be a team member. And this is very elusive for people on the outside. When you've been on the inside, it makes a lot more sense. But if I'm standing on the outside and I'm thinking mob scene is working on all the movies and all the kinds of content that I want to cut or I want to cut someday, but I'm going to be an assistant editor to start. What differentiates me from everybody else if I want to work for you? Boy, that's that undefinable it factor in a weird way. You know, it's something that you just kind of have to know. One of the hazards of, um, one of the things that's troublesome with, you know, um, posting on a LinkedIn or, jo- or job sites now is it goes so wide that the amount of stuff that comes in, I mean, literally to your point, you could get a thousand resumes. How are you going to start looking through a thousand resumes? And a lot of people who um, will send in a resume from Pennsylvania and have zero experience doing any of this. They just think it'd be cool to come out to Hollywood and work at a company like this. And it, and unfortunately those you just instantly have to just discard because, and, and, and again, too, it's hard to interview people, but now again, maybe it'll change with the zoom world that we're in. But if someone was very serious and really talented who doesn't live in Los in greater Los Angeles area, and was serious about moving here, you could actually, you know, ch- do interviews and check out personality and, and get a, get an insight into their brain more so than just looking at a, in a, in a resume on a piece of paper. You know, it's, it's hard to define that, that, that it factor. I mean, for editors, you know, it's, it's generally they're real. What, what, what is on there? And then, then you go, you take after the re looking at the real and going, Holy crap, this is some incredible editing. Then you get into the personality and then you get into the thought process and you, you get to see how it is, um, how they, how they tick. And then you also got to sit there and analyze as to, okay, will this person fit into my culture? You know, is there, is there just too big of an ego there that I just don't want that person around? It's just not worth it. You know that they're going to take a ton to manage. They're going to get notes from a client that they're going to go and be pissy about doing and, and, and whatnot. Um, for, for the, 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 the more entry level things is actually where it's kind of more fun. Um, we don't hire a ton of, I would say junior editors, that's coming up through our farm system. So what we do is we, we hire as, you know, generally like a lot of things uh, companies do, you, start, you can start in the vault or start as a, as a real low um, assistant editor, get into being a full assistant editor, um, go into being um, a junior editor um, and work your way up the ladder. And that's how what we've mainly done is, and not everyone's done it. Um, but, but a lot of people have, and I will say one thing about over the um, course of this pandemic, um, we've actually promoted a big chunk of our assistant editor pool and given them chairs, their own chair, as we like to say for editors, their own chair, um, to become an editor because they've, they've proven it, you know, and, um, so the, the one jobs that we have been hiring still during the pandemic are replacing AEs that we've promoted into junior or associate editors. If you're, you're going to either come in as a, in an entry level position and grow and show the talent that you've got. And I think it's super important because some, some will come in and they have, they have access to some of the greatest editorial talent and for 
advertising and, and, and behind the scenes that there is, but make the effort again, persistence, talk to those guys. And trust me, most editors is like, I'm sure you, you know, I know you do this with, with, with people that you've brought up over the years and you even started that um, at mob scene too, with some, some of the more junior is you, you help them along. Um, you know, you guys, editors want to help younger kids grow into it. And that's what's really pretty, pretty amazing, you know? And I think that what's also going to be really amazing is all the social change that we've also experienced during this, this pandemic. It's going to, this industry has not been very diverse, you know, and it's come under a lot of attacks for that. There's, there's no one necessarily to blame about that, but I think what's going to happen is there's going to be so many open doors for people of talented from all different backgrounds. And what excitement, what, what super excites me about that is just getting different points of view, create different takes on creative that we normally would never have had before. You know, even, even unfortunately there, there's not a ton of women that have been, you know, in the trailer world um, editing and stuff like that. And we see more and more of it and we try to bring them up in, in our AE pool um, as well. The trailer world is tough. It's tough for anybody. And I can imagine when it's a male dominant world and you're a, a woman trying to break into it, it's, it's pretty intimidating because it's intimidating for guys. Um, but I, I would imagine that going back to what we talked about earlier with company culture, the fact that you're hiring from within and building family from the ground up, that probably says a lot about why you have this cohesive family feel as opposed to let's just get all the all-stars. Let's get somebody with all the credits and all the experience and put them in the editor's chair. Like you said, they might be great creatively, but there are so many soft skills that you haven't helped to hone and mentor that you plug them into that spot and they're just not a good fit for the culture. And I'm guessing you've been through that at least once or twice. Yeah, just a few times. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's a big part of this process that most people miss. And this is something that I frankly, I don't even teach the, the hard skills. That's not my thing. But it's funny, I, I totally forgotten about the fact that uh, I even back at Mob Scene, I was starting to help mentor people and move them up. I don't, I don't know how not to mentor. It's just, it's who I've always been. And multiple students in my program came from Mob Scene and are now making the transition into the scripted world. One of them being uh, Len, who was there for, God, what, like a decade or something. Um, he ended up being an assistant editor on Cobra Kai um, on our team last year. What I like to focus on are the soft skills. Everybody says, well, I've cut this many trailers and I think that my editing is good. Hire me. But as you're alluding to, there are soft skills that people don't know need to be pointed out on a resume or need to be clear in an interview. So if you were to just look at somebody's resume, like here are the bullet points, they, they have the basic entry level experience for me to consider them now, because obviously if they're in Pennsylvania with no credits, they're on the no list. But you have somebody that meets the basic minimum criteria for an interview. What are the soft skills? What are the questions that you're really going to ask and the things you want to learn about their abilities beyond working in a timeline that are the most important to you? Oh, you've kind of put me on the spot here, Zach, because it's called I, the hot seat I town. have not. <laughs> yes. Um, because truthfully, I haven't personally really hired any editors myself in, in several years. It's like, as you know, when we were, when mob scene started, we were, Brian and I were involved with every single hire for many years. Um, but it's, it's gotten to the point now where, you know, when, when, when you've got a company that's hovering around a hundred people, it's just, it's just too much. Um, and, and, and I rely upon my 
creative team to bring in the people and hire them who feel is good, you know, and reflective of the culture and who they, they actually feel would, would, would make a good contribution and a good member of the team. Going, thinking back, I mean, the, the soft skills again are, you know, you're looking for someone who's open for team to being uh, part of a team, um, understands that concept of teamwork, is collaborative. Um, editors sometimes tend to be like, as you were alluding to yourself, my world, this is just Monday. It's no different because you're used to being kind of in your, in a room by yourself for a majority of the day. That doesn't mean you need to be void of personality. I think that it's super important that you have some sort of a personality that, you know, uh, shows in particularly enthusiasm and very much, um, doesn't need to be like a complete extrovert and, you know, or, or stand up comedian or something like that, but just, just something so that it's like, you, you know, that if this person's going to stay with you for a long while, you're going to enjoy their company. Cause there's going to be moments where you're going to be in the foxhole together and you're going to want to be sure that that time you're going to spend together, you're going to actually be able to make enjoy as best that you can when the bullets are flying over both of your heads. So beyond that, if we know that they have the the skills and the the kind of personality to to be able to work with others, are there any other specific skills that somebody needs to have outside of the timeline that make you think, you know what, I think that they would be they would be a good fit for us specifically? Because again, this is an area where so few actually focus their attention. It's like, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm so good. You should hire me. And I teach people, you need to identify what are the challenges and the needs of the company or the person you're working for. And you need to portray, I'm the solution to those challenges and I have those skills. So if, if I wanted to tell that story on a resume or in an interview that I understand what you need in an editor and I can fill that gap. What are the, the pieces that a lot of people miss? Well, think, think about what an editor does. An editor doesn't just cut picture. That's the basic job, right? What else do you do to make a scene work? What else do you do to make a trailer work? There's music and being able to cut music really well. There's sound design. Um, even though there's there's help, we have help on both those things with our music department and, and, and sound mixers, but if you're cutting a trailer, you got to know what it is that you want, where you want to stick it and how it's going to pop. Um, and those little details are super important for the content side of things. It's, it's a different type of storytelling. It's, it's more related to like your, your long forms or you're, you're actually telling a, a longer story that's got more of a, um, you might have more time to breathe, and, but yet you still got to keep it interesting. And what kind of a storyteller are you? You know, um, a lot of um, like a lot of people sit there and criticize the trailer kind of end of, of things as being like we live in an ADD world. So everything's got to be, you know, trailers are two, two minutes and 30 seconds long. It's been that way for 30 years. But what we're doing now is we're, you know, once we lock a trailer like we just did um, uh, in the Heights that premiered during the Grammys, um, um, and as soon as we finished that trailer and it premiered, the first thing we're doing is we're cutting a 60 second version, a 30 second version, a 20 second version, a 10 second version, a five second version of that, because that's the way it's all going out and, and being consumed into the world right now. So it's, it's having those, those, it's not just about being able to cut a trailer and it's not just about being able to cut an HBO, um, first like special or a Blu-ray piece 
you've got to be able to do so much more in there to make them sing. And I would guess that like, even in back in quote unquote, my day of the, the trailer world, where I remember as an assistant, I was driving three quarter inch outputs from the studios and, you know, executives houses. And once again, people are like, what's a three quarter inch tape. Um, but back then there were cut downs, but nowadays I'm guessing it's also do the vertical version for Instagram. And this goes in Instagram reels. And this is for TikTok. Like I can't even imagine what your deliverable list looks like now versus 2006 it's got to be uh, insanity uh, it's a, it's insane yeah where you would deliver you know you do the trailer and you do your thing like i said but it's now you're doing so many different versionings it's not on it's not it's not unrealistic to sometimes see almost like up to 40 deliverables on a piece of content now because of the different formats of which it goes out into the world and is consumed which I would say goes back to one of the most important, if not the most important soft skill as a creative is adaptability. You can't just be the trailer. Oh, I don't do cut downs or, oh, I don't do long form. It's, there's no such thing anymore. You have to be adaptable if you're going to survive. No question. Um, and one thing that I would add, and I'm, uh, I would assume that you agree, but I want to add to it as well that I tell people all the time is that – you can be an editor that just takes the notes and does the notes and you're the extension of the keyboard and that's fine. But I've always believed that the ones that get to the next level are the ones that know how to take the notes, even that don't work and deliver above the expectation of either the creative director or the client or the studio, where I find a lot of times the notes and the suggestions, the solutions are wrong but they've identified the right problem. And that's where I think a lot of creatives get frustrated. Oh, that's dumb. Why would I change that music? But they fail to see the note underneath the note. Oh, but we're not feeling the right thing here. And their solution might be totally off because, you know, they're just a suit. They're just a, an executive, but they're onto something. And I think the best creatives and the best editors and the best writers, they identify the notes underneath the notes where they can say, we didn't do this note as intended, but here's the solution we came up with. That to me is what really builds trust and long-term relationships. Absolutely. Uh, so I know that we're running a little bit long. I have one more question that I want to ask that kind of goes to the core and the heart of why I started what I have over the years, which is that everything we've talked about so far is business and you building this company from the ground up over the last 15, 16 years now. But if anybody were to go on your Facebook page, and by the way, I may not have told you this, but I live vicariously through your Facebook page. There are so many pictures of you traveling, and it's always about you and your family. So it seems to me that that's a really important core part of even though you're working these long hours and building and now maintaining this company, you've prioritized that. How important has that been to the success of the company? Because some could say, well, you're, you're not around all the time and you got to be totally dedicated to the company and everything else is secondary. And I at least get the feeling that part of your success is because you've taken all of those trips and used the success to find time with your family. Well, look, I think you need balance. I've, I've seen it through a lot of people, particularly when I was in the studio side of things where that you, you, you would see people who live in breathe and sleep their job. And I don't think that that's really necessarily that number one, that healthy. And number two, I don't think that they're necessarily the best at their job because they don't have a balance in their life. Um, I think that having some sort of a balance in your life. Now for me, it's, it's my family. For others, it could be anything differently. You could be just, you know, wanting, you know, being someone who, who likes to climb mountains or someone who likes to surf or whatever. But you got to allow that stuff for yourself because you know what? That if if you if you just work, um, you're gonna you're gonna get just kind of stuck 
or you're going to get just in the, the same routine that you're never going to be able to break that chain um, to do, to be able to do different things. But if you, if you allow yourself some time to do other things that you like in your life and you get satisfaction in your life, you're going to be a much more productive in your work life. Um, and you're also going to have more energy in your work life. Um, and you probably will have a longer work life because you won't burn out. And I think that that's it. it it's like, you know, if, if I wasn't able to do all this stuff with my, you know, have some time with my family nowadays. Now, of course, the last year has been weird. It's more time than we ever anticipated. And I feel bad for my 16 year old who just spent more time with her parents than any 16 year old. I just think it's really important. Now, I, I can't say that I've done this my whole life, though, either, because when I was young and just got out of film school, um, aside from periods in between jobs early on, um, when I worked, I worked. And if I took a vacation, it was only basically to go home for a long weekend to see my family or just go home for Christmas. I didn't do a lot for myself until I felt I had reached a point where I was like, OK, I'm kind of comfortable with, you know, where I'm at in my, in my career that I feel like I can take it away. You know, I, I don't know how much that was like, I was just worried about not going, you know, at, at one point when I was at Fox, I was working on um, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie, the first one that they did. And I was down in Sydney, Australia, and I had always wanted to go to Australia. And Fox had just opened up a studio. They were actually using it to shoot the, the movie down there. They had just opened up a studio down there. And I was talking to people and I was like, oh, these people are great. And I'm like, why don't I come down here and see about working down here for two years? And I literally toyed with that idea for a little while until it kind of dawned on me that I'm like, you know, as great as that would be, I'd probably lose two years in my career not being in L.A. And so I made that decision. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the decision I made at the time for the, for the reason I did at the time. Now, I, I, you know, I think that would have been super cool to have done that for two or three years. You know, I had no, at that time, I didn't own a house. I didn't, I didn't, wasn't in a serious relationship or anything like this. And it's like, I could have done it, um, but I didn't. And, um, you know, but I also don't live by any regrets. So. Well, I, I think it's important to to recognize in hindsight that uh, would my career change significantly? I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it probably wouldn't have because like you keep talking about the combination of your work ethic and your persistence. I think it's kind of one of those. It takes one to know one. You see the persistence in others because you have it. I can't imagine that if you had been in Australia for two years, you would have come to L.A. and like, oh, I'm so far behind. I give up like you. You would have figured it out. You'd still essentially be, I think, where you are now without a whole lot changing. But um, the the important thing that I really want to take from what you said that I just I want to hammer home is that somebody at your level. And I just I want to get more people at your level saying this, screaming it from the rooftops. Burning out and working all the time is not conducive to your creativity. There are going to be times when we're all in the foxhole. We're in the trenches. We have deadlines. We have notes. We have a delivery date. We all get it. This business is not nine to five. We're not bankers. But at the same time, I think that the culture is going to change both from the top down with people like you that recognize work-life balance is important for the sake of business. It's actually good for business if we don't burn you out into the ground and just replace you one after another after another. 
But at the same time, I think it's important for people from the ground up to recognize and pursue companies and relationships with people like you and with Mobscene, realizing we have the same needs in mind, where you recognize the need that I have for being able to, to take a break or go in the mountains or run American Ninja Warrior, whatever craziness it might be, knowing that big picture, it's best for all of us, even if short term, and we might have to move the calendar around a little bit. And I think more people at your, your level need to be okay saying that just so we can eradicate this 24-7 workaholic, burn everybody into the ground and just replace them with the next one that's ready to burn themselves out. I have a saying that I've, I can't even tell you. I must have said it hundreds of times because to employees who have come to me that either something's come up in their life, you know, maybe there's been a death in their family or something like this. And it's like, and they come to me almost like feeling guilty, asking for time off. And I'm like, stop, stop. We work to live. We don't live to work. No one's going to put on your tombstone. I did such and such a trailer. You know, no one's going to sit there and talk about you at a, a memorial that you produced such and such a behind the scenes featurette or HBO first look. Who's going to talk about you or the people who love you and the people that you love. So that's what's going to, we're ultimately going to leave our imprint on this planet when we're gone. I think personally, you and I are very lucky. We've, we chose an incredibly exciting, rewarding, fulfilling career. You know, I think that being able to make a living being creative is pretty unique, you know, given given what else could be done in, in, in the world. And I think that we're very fortunate for that and, and, and blessed. Um, but again, what you're going to be remembered for is being a dad and a husband, as I hope I, that's how I am remembered as well. Now, they may talk about the fact that I created, you know, co-founded Mob Scene and ran it for X number of years or whatever. That's great, but that's more of a footnote to what my real impact in the world was. Yeah. No, when that day comes, nobody's going to talk about the guy that ran mob scene and generate X amount of revenue. It's here's the guy that ran mob scene and created this family of people that are here, right? That's, that's ultimately what it's all about. And I, I couldn't cap this any better than we work to live. We don't live to work. I mean, I, I've heard it before, but I haven't heard it in a long time and hearing it from you just, I mean, I literally, I got goosebumps when you said that just, you might've been the first one I told that to. Maybe, maybe years ago, because I was one of those young up and comers that I was a workaholic and I'm still a recovering workaholic. And I also call myself a recovering perfectionist because they both can go in very, very uh, unhealthy directions. And uh, I've, I've seen the, the dark side of it and I've been burned down and dealt with really, really dark uh, depression and mental health issues because I was so driven towards success and climbing that ladder at the expense of everything else. And ultimately the wake up call was kids like, well, this isn't going to work anymore, is it? And I had to realign all of my goals and my lifestyle and behaviors and habits. And um, I've said no to a lot of really good opportunities because it didn't align with, like you said, ultimately, I'm a dad. I have a lot of identities, but that's the one I have to focus on first. And I think it's important for people to, to have the courage to stand up for themselves and go to somebody like you and not say, well, if it's okay, I have to do this thing or go to this appointment or see this play. It's like, Tom, I just want to let you know I'm going to be out Friday because my daughter's doing a recital. You're the kind of guy that's like, dude, go, don't miss the recital. But not everybody in your positions like that yet. So if we could just clone you and put you in those, because people are just terrified. And that's why they come to you so hesitant. They're so terrified that if I ask for one morning off, I'm going to be in two hours late because of the, the spring recital. Oh, I don't know if they're going to want to keep me. It's like, it's, it's absurd. It just, yeah. it drives me crazy, that mentality, that, that fear culture. I just, I want to eradicate all of it. 
Yeah, you know what? But it's, it's funny. I don't know how much we can do that because I, I still feel really uncomfortable sometimes walking the halls of the company and there may be a newer employee there who I don't know that well. And I can, if I walk past it, I'll always say hello and smile or whatever. But I can tell that the, the, their shoulders will suddenly go up, raised, they'll look to the ground, that they're just intimidated just because of the title. And I'm like, I am the most approachable, you know, you've known me 15, 16 years. It's like, I am the most approachable person, in, uh, you know, on the planet. I, I love people and I love talking to them. And um, it, it always, it always throws me off when I see someone that's actually just intimidated by me because just of what my business card says. Well, at this point, you you have been more than gracious enough with your time. Uh, as somebody that considers himself a, a time management expert, I have just vastly gone over, but it was for the the sake of a really quality, engaging, and frankly, inspiring conversation. You even got me at the end. You got me all in goosebumps at the end. So um, th- I knew that this was going to be great catching up, and I knew that this was going to be a fun interview, but um, probably not to my surprise, you vastly exceeded my expectations, and I think this is tremendously valuable for everybody that's going to uh, listen to it. So, um, Well, thanks for having me on, Zach. And it, again, more important to me, it was, it's great to see you again and actually have a conversation with you. So the, the final, last, super quick, easy question. Somebody's interested in either connecting with you or connecting with mob scene, they want to put themselves out there. And most importantly, they feel they're a good fit for the family and they can provide your company value. What's the best first step for them? How do they find you or find the company? Um, well, they can always go through HR at mobscene.com for um, any inquiries in terms of stock uh, of, of things, uh, job openings, and also see if there's postings. Now, we're still coming out of the pandemic. There's there's not a lot of hiring still going on. I I, I would feel the second half of this year that that's going to change. Um, you know, I can already feel that the, the the work is starting to ramp back up, and it's getting you know we're still a ways off from pre-COVID levels. But um, you know, even in my dealings with clients right now, it's like there's a there seems to have been a switch that has gone that that has been made in the last three months where people are like okay we've we've done this enough it feels like with the vaccines and whatnot you know we're going to be out of this fairly soon so let's go let's go for it again let's 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 make this happen cool so uh, hr at mobscene.com is the place to start yeah and then for anybody else that wants to uh, to to go the uh, the smarter, more circuitous route, but the deeper route, they can go to all my other resources about how to uh, network and build relationships and play the long game and uh, you know become become friends with the right people and learn how to provide them value and make their lives better. It's so important, but also it's also so important to the point that we were talking about living life. It's like you know your connections can also be your friends. Like my, a lot of our clients are my friends. A lot of my connections over the years, you know, they, they may have been bosses or whatever, but they've become friends. So, you know, don't be afraid to make to meet new people. <laughs> and, and another thing I always say too, particularly starting out, and also don't be afraid to walk through a door in this business that may not be the door you want to walk through because you don't know what doors are behind that door. It's like you, I see so many people come out here. Like I came out here to go into film school. I wanted to be a producer initially, but I went through the doors that, that opened for me. And then I saw another door that was like, oh, super cool. And then it all ultimately led to where I'm sitting today. And it was a matter of, you know, just like, I love movies. I love being in this business and I wanted, and I, and I, I just want to be a part of it. And 
don't limit yourself. I couldn't have ended it any better way. So uh, on that note, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, and uh, I look forward to, to reconnecting again soon. So thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon. <laughs> yeah, won't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.